Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 331. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 331 you're listening to. My guest today is Michael Castaneda, who is an audio engineer who does location recordings, post-production, producing, and consultation for podcasts. I met Michael on Clubhouse. We hit it off, and I asked him to share his knowledge with my audience, and he agreed. And I think you're going to get a lot of inspiration from his story and a lot of great, great information in general. So, Michael Castaneda, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about banking locally. You know, we live in a time where we could do so much online. You know it's possible. So there's no need for me to go down a list. When it comes to banking, I've been a user of online banks for a few years. You know the ones with no fees for anything unless you really screw something up. The bank I used for WCA business recently closed. I was so bummed out because these folks really knew how to keep me happy as a customer. I had signed up with them because my local bank that I had been banking with had an antiquated looking online presence and the app was really not much to write home about. Plus they didn't allow for ACH payments to pay vendors directly to their bank accounts and skip the PayPal's and Stripes of the world and the fees that accompany them. I was easily wowed by their user interface and slick design. Once that cool new bank closed though, I was really struggling to find a replacement. So I tried one that had horrible customer service and jumped ship. And the next one I tried failed to get my debit card to me within 65 days of, of the relationship. In fact, I'm still waiting on the debit card and their customer service is just abysmal. So today I went back to my old local bank where I had been maintaining a modest balance and discovered that they upped their game on features. The catch was the $10 a month fee. So I did the old school thing and went into the bank. Crazy, right? I discussed my situation with the staff and they said, no problem, we could set it up to give you the same features you were getting from your cool online bank. And here's one of the employee's cards or the phone number you can call if there's any trouble. It should be all set by tomorrow. I walked out of there on a customer service high that I haven't felt in ages. I talked to a real human in real time. They were helpful. They were not reading from a script. And neither one of us was typing into a computer to communicate. So many interactions these days are missing that human element, that understanding, that empathy. I stated the problem. They made a solution. So with that, I say, friends, don't underestimate your local small bank or credit union where real humans are working. It may cost you a little bit extra, but remember, you like to be paid for your work, and banks need to pay their employees as well. $10 a month is nothing when you consider the time and the stress saved when banking. This is also a concept that you can apply to other things. Just consider stimulating your local economy and small business ecosystem by doing business locally as much as you can. It may cost you a little bit more, but the community it helps build is immeasurable. 
That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Michael Castaneda here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, sir. This is a huge thrill for me, man. Where is it that you grew up? So I'm born and raised in West Covina, California, which is about 20 miles east of downtown LA. Mm -hmm. It's a suburbs. It's part of the San Gabriel Valley. And it's one of those areas that if you're a transplant and you work in LA, you have no idea where West Covina is. I have no idea where West Covina is. Yeah. I mean, it's not the boonies by any stretch. Like, it's not like I live in Rancho, like Rancho Cucamonga is like 
kind of the boonies or like San Bernardino is kind of like the boonies for people. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to Pasadena. I'm about 15 minutes away from Pasadena, but it's still far enough east that people that are from LA proper, they never go out this far. But you know, LA is so big, right? I mean, it's such a, it's such a massive area. Like if you're not from LA, people think Disneyland is in LA and it's not, it's in a completely different County. And it's funny how people from outside California think Northern and Southern California are so close because people will say, I'm flying into San Francisco, but can't we just pop down to L.A. and go to Disneyland? I'm like, no, we can't. There's and no I mean, popping. like even more than that, there, there, there are a lot of people that don't even consider San Francisco to be Northern California. There is that contingent of people. That's right. Because there is North of San Francisco. Right. Like more like Sacramento. Mm-hmm. You're like in Northern California. That's right. Where is it that you live now? And is that far from where you grew up? So I'm actually still in West Covina, born and raised here. I, I ended up going to a community college in Glendora for music because I was a huge band geek. Did that and stayed close to home. How does audio occupy your time today? So right now I'm mainly doing tape syncs for podcasts and uh, radio, and then I mix and edit podcasts as well, typically for independent podcasters. But recently I've been getting some corporate clients, which has been really great. Explain to me what a tape sync is. So most of the time when you're listening to radio, let's say you're listening to Fresh Air with Terry Gross, that's like the interview standard. Nine times out of 10, Terry Gross is in, I think she does her show from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So she's going to be in studio in Philadelphia. Whoever she's talking to is going to be anywhere. They could be, you know, anywhere in the world. So obviously someone is, you know, recording inside the studio and then they hire an engineer to go to the interviewee's place and record from there. So that's what I do. And then it's just edited together in post. So like yesterday, for example, I was hired by iHeartRadio or Media to do a tape sync for a show that they have called Four Courses. And the uh, woman that I recorded, she's a co-owner in a restaurant and a model. So I drove to her place in a fancy part of LA and set up inside there, set up a, a microphone in front of her and record that. And then as soon as I'm done, I just you know send that to the producers and then they go from there. In the time of COVID, are you able to do it from your car if you wanted to? Well, I mean, look, it that's like kind of a sensitive topic. I mean, obviously, most people are very, very careful about all this. And, you know, I'm one of the few that I still want to work mm-hmm. and I still want to go out and do things. So tape syncs have really dried up over the past year. Uh-huh. I've only done a handful. I've done some really big ones, but I've only done a handful. So people that are posting them online they get a lot of flack for it because people speak up like, how are you posting tape syncs? Why would you do this? You shouldn't be doing in-person recordings. And I'm, I, I've a few times jumped in and say, hey, don't stop me from working. If I want to work, don't stop me from working. So some of what I've heard is sometimes they do outside recordings rather than be indoors where there's you know a possible spread they do outdoors. Thankfully, I haven't done any of the outdoors. Everyone that I've done has been very cool and, you know, let me in and we pick a room and do it like normal. I'm wearing a mask. If they want gloves, I'm wearing gloves. I have the whole, you know, wipes and I'm wiping down equipment. I got hand sanitizer. So I follow the CDC protocols and all that. 
But yeah, it's kind of a sensitive topic right now. I didn't realize that. We had some uh, work done on our house and the crew that showed up, they wore masks. And when they came in the house, we all put our masks on. And if we needed to talk at length, sometimes we would just go outside and, you know, sit on chairs apart from one another and discuss plans or whatever. Right. So that's that's interesting. I understand what it is you're doing. I, I guess I never realized it was called tape sinks. Correct. The other term, which I don't like, is called a double ender. Ah, uh, okay. That's a, it almost has a baseball kind of connotation. Yeah. I mean, for like whatever reason, I, I, I just don't feel like it's an appropriate way of describing what, what it is. I mean, I guess it is. It's all semantics. I just prefer tape sync more. I mean, it's, you know, obviously like a, a grandfathered term or whatever. So let's go back a bit. When did audio become a relevant interest of yours? When did it capture your attention to a point of obsession? Well, I mean, it really started at a very young age. I was born in 79. And I can remember listening to cassette tapes, and there's a few in particular. I mean, I listened to a little bit of records before that. Like, I had a Fisher-Price record player, you know, Uh like a lot of kids. And my parents don't, they're not musicians, but they do really like music. So we had music playing all the time. But it's really when I was listening to cassettes. Like, the first cassettes I can remember is I had Van Halen, what is it, 1984? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I had that. I had... Michael Jackson Thriller. And then my brother, who's four years older than me, got two rap cassettes. He got Run DMC Raising Hell and Beastie Boys Licensed to Ill. So it was those four cassettes that I listened to constantly where I really, really got that love for music and for recordings. And then when I was in middle school, I enrolled in band and I started off playing alto sax. And I liked playing a horn, but I never really took it serious. It wasn't until high school that I became a massive band geek, and I really got into drum and bugle corps. Are you familiar with drum and bugle corps? I don't believe I am. I mean, maybe you should explain that one to me like you did tape sync, so maybe I can get a sense of what you're talking about. So if there was such a thing as professional marching band, this is it. It's all brass, all drums on a field, and they compete during the summer. Okay. And there's different groups from around the U.S. Okay, like the like the Concord, Concord Blue Devils. Dude, I'm obsessed with them. I'm an absolute fanatic of BD. Like, massive. Like, I like drum corps, but I, I'm more of a BD fan than drum corps. I'm absolutely obsessed with them. So, yes, exactly like them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, dude, it's a really old activity. I mean, it dates back to like the 30s where like Boy Scout troops had drums and then eventually they got horns and then stuff like that. You know, it's got a military background, all that. But yeah, so I was a massive drum corps fan. So then I switched from alto sax to trumpet and then I wanted to be a professional trumpet player. I got into drum corps and then I started listening to Arturo Sandoval. He was like the big player for me that like really changed me, you know, along with a bunch of other players, Freddie Hubbard, Clifford Brown, Maurice Andre. Like I got into jazz and classical a lot. And then after high school, I was very fortunate in that there was a a, a nearby community college that has a stellar music program. Citrus Community College in Glendora. And I went there and studied with some really great trumpet players. Bob Slack was the head of the program. I studied with Charlie Davis, Jim Hale, guys like that. Fantastic. 
I didn't really have plans after that, but it got to a point where it became painfully obvious that I was not going to do this professionally, <laughs> which was a huge bummer, but I eventually got to that point. And lucky for me at that college, like a year before I got there, they opened up a recording studio and a recording program. So I said, oh, let me take the survey class and just see if I like it. And I ended up loving it and then got accepted to the program. It was a two semester program, very comprehensive. Survey class? Yeah. So the way that the program was set up was rather than just dumping you into this two semester year long program, they wanted you to take introductory courses just to make sure that you were kind of ready to go into it because they didn't want to have with people just dropping out. Like, oh, this is too much. Oh, it's not what I expected. Mm. Basically, the class was the Modern Recording Techniques book by Huber. Yeah. Like, we basically went through that cover to cover. He's an old friend. God, that guy's great. I still have my copy today. It's it's one of my favorite books. Yeah, he's he's incredible. So we basically went through that cover to cover. And then after you did that, if you don't have a music background, you had to take like a musicianship class mm. and then like a basics to like electricity. Okay. And then after you do that, there was like an interview process just to make sure you, you were kind of a good fit. And then you got accepted into the program. Basics to electricity. Yeah. You know, like very, like very basics, but learning the difference between amps and voltage and, you know, resistors and looking at schematics and stuff like that. That's really cool. I like that. So where did you go from there? So after that, I ended up really loving that program and I had a decision to make. At the time, this is 2006, I graduated. To, no, it was 2004. I graduated mm -hmm. in 2004, so I had a decision. I could either get a job as a runner in you know, a studio in LA, which a lot of people did. The school has a very good reputation and feeds a lot of recording studios, so I could have done that. Or I could transfer and go for a bachelor's. Unfortunately for me, I uh, decided to transfer, and I went to UCSD. I loved UCSD. I loved the experience. Just it was one of those things like in hindsight, it was absolutely not worth it. And I regret that decision. I mean, it was great. Like I went to UCSD for uh, audio. They have a really incredible audio program there. It's a little bit different. The program is called ICAM, Interdisciplinary Computer Arts Major. So it's all about how computation has affected art, but you focus on one side of it. So I focused on the audio side. Yeah, I mean, the program was fantastic. Tom Erb was one of my professors who's very famous from doing sound hack and a great engineer. Miller Puckett taught there, still teaches there. He's from Pure Data PD, has a very great history with electronic music and computer music. So, I mean, it was the experience was incredible. And you are talking about University of San Diego. Yes, sir. Okay. Just for the, for the non-Californians. Yeah. And dude, I mean, like it was great. It was, it was a very different program, whereas Citrus Community College was more traditional recording. The big music program at, at, at Citrus was big band. So mm -hmm. before I got there, I was playing in big bands. And now that we're there, like there was a lot of jazz focus and big band focus and show choir stuff. But now that I went to UCSD, I was exposed to a lot of computer music. That was like my first time learning about synthesizers, like a lot of performative stuff like atonal music. I'd never been familiar with atonal music before. And now I'm learning about Stockhausen and all these composers, Morton Sabotnik and all, you know, like all these guys. And uh, it was very different. And two, we had access to grad students that are doing a lot of different things and I'm being able to record them. So it was great going through both and getting both sides of it. It sounds like you, you have a, a passion for 
a little bit of the education of, of recording and music? Well, I mean, I did because I'm terrible at teaching myself anything. Like if you gave me a synth and said, figure this out, I'm done. There's no way I can. So I really wanted to take advantage of what I could to learn as much as I could. And, you know, one of the things we were told at Citrus, which was really true, Citrus has a really, really great studio there. And the staff was like, hey, there's a chance. This is the best room and the best equipment you're ever going to use. So like really use it while you can and appreciate it. So having access to rooms like that, UCSD also opened a really great facility where I got to use a lot of really awesome gear and stuff. So I really wanted to take advantage of that. And two, at the time, I thought that getting a bachelor's would matter. Like I thought that that would have a positive impact. And this is just for me personally. It has played absolutely zero role in my life. For what reasons? So I walked in 2011, which was a couple of years after the crash in 2008. And things were still bad enough that no studios were hiring, like zero. So I was living in San Diego. I was done with school and it's like, okay, I got to get a job. I sent out hundreds of resumes in San Diego for audio gigs. San Diego is a really big city. They have a very vibrant music scene. So I was sending resumes to recording studios, live music venues, everything and anything I could possibly think of and got no responses at all, hmm. got nowhere. So I moved. I moved in with my brother in Orange County. He was living in Tustin, did the exact same thing. Orange County's very similar. There's not as much recording studios, but there are a lot of live music venues, all that stuff. Sent out resumes again, nothing. Moved back to LA, did the exact same thing and got nothing. It got to the point to where I would wake up in the morning and I'd get on Craigslist to look for jobs and just looking at the Craigslist interface made me physically ill. <laughs> and at that point, I said, okay, I got to stop this. I got to try something else because this is not working for me. How is your state of mind in that time period? Here you've been in these different locations. You're pumping out resumes and nothing is happening. How are you feeling? Luckily for me, I'm, I'm naturally an optimistic person. But I mean, dude, it was dismal. It was absolutely dismal. The last job that I applied for was a dishwashing gig down the street at a chain restaurant and got nothing. So hmm. it's like, yeah, I mean, I felt, I felt absolutely hopeless. I can't even imagine just that sense of not rejection, but ambivalence, just people not even responding. Yeah, it was, it was really brutal. But luckily for me, the change came just by complete chance. A buddy of mine that I, that I used to work with, so when I was living in San Diego and I was going to UCSD, I was also working at Torrey Pines Golf Course, which is a very famous golf course. And a buddy of mine there had worked in TV a little bit. So when I moved back to LA, he knew I was struggling. He was offered a day play gig on a show. And he said, hey, I'm not available for it, but I'm going to pass on a friend's information so he did to this production coordinator. The production coordinator contacted me and said, hey, are you, are you available for this day play gig? And I said, sure. And I went there. It was at Universal City Walk in LA. Got there really early, worked a full shift. And after that day, I worked five and a half years in reality TV. Day play gig? So day play gig is TV shows or movies. If they have a particular day of work, 
where they just need extra hands just to do anything. They just need you for that day. Let's say they're filming outside and there's a ton of people walking around. They need a PA just to do releases for the people that they film. So I would have like a sheet of paper. I'd walk up to the people and have them sign a appearance release. And then that's all I did all day. I mean, that's like one example of it. So for me, the show was America's Next Top Model. And they were doing this kind of big, fancy outdoor event. And they just needed me to do like basic PA stuff. Like the very first thing I did was I got bags of ice from one side of the of a parking lot and walked them all the way across the entire place to the production office. Tasks like that. What kind of pay does that generate? It was brutal. So this is back in, I don't know, maybe 2012, I think I started. I think it was 125 bucks a day. And here's what made it worse. I didn't have a car. So once they hired me on after that day, I had to now rent a car. So I'm making $125 a day, but I'm paying half of it on the car rental and gas. So I was, I mean, like I didn't make any money working that first show. I mean, I, I, I just broke even. That's interesting. So did that start to shift how you approached money when you were dealing with that? I mean, unfortunately, the shift came later once I got promoted. So I, I PA'd for, for a really long time, but it was great though, because I had a ton of great opportunities PAing and learned a lot about the business and about all of that. But once I got promoted to an assistant camera op and started working in the camera department, the pay increased a lot. I mean, I was making three fifty a day plus per diem if we were on the road. So going from you know about one hundred and fifty or whatever to three fifty, now like I'm making some money. So that's where things like really changed for me. And then after I worked as an assistant camera op for a little while, I actually ended up transferring to another, sh well, not transferring, but reality TV is kind of brutal because you're, you're only working for a couple months on that show and then you have to find another one. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly looking for your next gig. So I ended up leaving the camera department and again, fell into working in the art department. I got hired as a PA one day, again, a day play gig on a cooking show as a PA. And the art department had me go out on a run. And when I came back, she was like, yeah, you're working the rest of the show just as an art PA. And then the next season, they promoted me to a set decorator. Like, again, the more money and, you know, I had a much better idea of what I wanted to do. But then it, it, just, it mm. just got to the point, man, to where I had a camera op tell me when I was working in the camera department. This guy had been in the, in the industry for a very long time. He's really good camera op. He's been in it forever. We were on a lunch break. I remember specifically where it was. It was in front of the Reef Building in downtown L.A., he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Mike, get out as soon as you can. And he said that because it's a grind. It is absolutely a grind. Now, look, at everyone has different experiences. Some people love it. They're going to do it the rest of their lives. They're going to end up being producers or whatever. For other people, when you're going to be a camera op and that's all you're going to do, it is a grind. Being on the road is great when you're young, but when you get to his age, he was like, I don't know, in his early 50s, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on you. You have a 35-pound a camera on your shoulder. You're living out of your suitcase. It's, it's, it's brutal. So that, for me, got my gears turning where I felt fortunate and I loved being in TV, but I wasn't recording, you know? Like, I was not recording, and I really wanted to record. 
I wanted to ask you that. How did that impact, once again, back to your mental state? Like, you're working and you're doing stuff, but it has only a distant relation to audio. At first, it didn't bother me because I was working and making money. And going through that whole thing of not working and making money, it's like, whatever. I'll find some way to work in audio later on. But for right now, I got to get this going. I really have to try and make this a career. But then after doing it for a while and having that camera op talk to me and tell me that, I was like, okay, well, I'm making money right now and I'm doing okay. Maybe now I can start to do something kind of on the side, but possibly like start a business maybe on the side doing audio and then eventually ditch TV and just do that. So I kind of started to do that. So going back to the whole band geek thing when I was in high school, I have a pretty big network of friends that are teachers, that are high school teachers or middle school teachers. So I got the idea, hey, let me come record your group, right? Because when I was in college, I had a job as being an engineer on campus at UCSD. UCSD records every single performance that happens. And there's a ton of performances that happen. So they have a massive archive of all of their performances. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why aren't high schools doing that? Obviously, the college level of players is a lot different than high school. But I would think the way digital recording is right now, you buy a handheld recorder, you record your groups, you at least give it to your kids so they have that memory. Like when I was in high school, we had one recording on like a Tascam cassette recorder. And like, dude, we loved that recording. That was the coolest thing. It was our jazz band. Like it was our best four songs and like, we loved it. And having that now, it's like, I love that. So the fact that kids don't have that, I thought that maybe I could kind of get that niche. Southern California has a ton of high schools. So I thought maybe I could get that niche to where I can go in and provide that for band directors. And was the plan to just do that with no charge or did you plan to monetize that in a way? Absolutely monetize that. <laughs> I mean, it would have been great if I could have done that for a living because, you know, there's a ton of bands. There's basically four or five big groups per year. So there'd be a lot of recordings. And if I could really make that work, I thought I wanted to do that. But again, me applying for jobs before, band directors were just, they did not care at all. Again, I sent out hundreds of emails. Absolutely, it's partly my fault too, because now I'm a lot more business savvy and I have a much better understanding of business. But I didn't understand that you had to build a relationship first. I couldn't just cold email people with this idea. They don't care. That's not a problem they have. I'm trying to sell it to them like it's this great thing. And it never even occurred to them to do that. So the vast majority just didn't get back to me. And I had two friends that had groups and they had me out. And it wasn't until I went out and gave them the recording and listened to it. Then they were like, oh, I get it now. This is cool. I'm glad my kids are going to have this. So it was really hard for me to get these band directors to have that aha moment. And, you know, some will and some won't. But for like the couple that I did, they got it. Yeah. But like there was, dude, it, it failed. Absolutely failed. There was no way it was going to work. So I had to go back to the drawing board. It's one thing to have the idea, but to execute it, you have to put a few things in place. You can't just like go, I'm going to go record high school bands. Let me email a bunch of band directors. 
wrong way to go about it. Right. I thought it was a great idea at the time. <laughs> I still kind of do. It, I think it is, still is a great idea. I just think it's it's a marketing problem. 100% it is. Yes. So that didn't work out. What did you continue to do to develop audio or an audio business on the side of doing these reality shows? So again, I got super lucky. A buddy of mine that I graduated the program with at Citrus calls me up one day, Matthew Shaw, great guy, calls me up and says, hey, I'm moving to South Korea. I have a bunch of gear. I'm giving it to you. So he gave me a Behringer X32 Compact. He gave me the accompanying S16 stage box. He gave me a set of monitors, Alesis monitors, a few microphones, a giant toolbox full of tools, full of cables, full of adapters, all kinds of stuff. And it's like, here you go. So I'm like, great, I'm back in business now because <laughs> now I can do recordings with that. I can do live sound. I can do whatever. Like, I just have to go find a way I can fit in. And as far as fitting in, what happened? Well, another friend of mine that from that program, he had a live sound company where he had some pretty big corporate clients that he was doing stuff with. So he would hire me to set up or tear down or to run the mixer for panel discussions or whatever. So in between me trying to find clients on my own or gigs on my own, I was working with him. So even if I wasn't getting clients, I was still a little busy with him and getting experience doing live sound. Now, I found out very quickly, I hate live sound. It's a great thing. And God bless the engineers that do it. I'm just not cut out for it. It's too much pressure. It's too much work. And just, oh, oh man, like it's, it, it's, yeah, it sucks. Or at least it sucks for me. So it's like, okay, well, I got to figure something out. I had, you know, a couple of friends that had bands and went in and did some little recordings for them and whatever little mixing projects I can find, but it was nothing substantial. Like there was nothing that was consistent. I mean, it was absolutely feast or famine. So um, I'm at a buddy's bar in Covina, the Chatterbox, and he says, hey, I have a friend that is a comedy writer and she's starting a podcast, but she has no tech ability at all. Would you be interested in working with her? And hearing that, I was like, why did I not think of that before? Why did I not get into podcasting immediately? It didn't even occur to me, Matt. <laughs> so he sets me up with her. Her name's Courtney Kosak. She's a great producer, and I'm still working with her to this day. And we, we, we first started working together in 2016. Yeah, it really is amazing how some of these audio tasks around us, we're oblivious to what's possible. And here it was like right in your lap. And I also want to say this. It sounds like that your network of friends has played a critical role in your success. Absolutely massive. I'm very lucky. I think probably the best skill that I have is getting along with so many people and having people really have interest in liking me. And I put out a lot of, well, it doesn't feel like a lot of effort. It feels natural to me, but I keep in contact with a lot of people. And yeah, my buddy Kalani got me the job in TV. My buddy Steve got me doing podcasting. It's all come from basically referrals. I haven't had luck reaching out to people and then getting that thing, which is why I've really stopped doing that. But now that I know that, I really focus on that as much as possible. Like I've, I've, I've come to realize that that's how I'm going to build my career. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Let's dive into a little bit of podcasting and the audio activities that you involve yourself in now. A lot of people really, when it comes to audio and just recording in general, it seems that they either go the live sound route or they go the studio route and they work with bands in either way. And then there's those that go into radio. Podcasting is not necessarily a new thing. I mean, geez, this show is, as of this recording, is is heading towards its seventh year. So it's certainly not a new thing. But not that many people, I think, prioritize it. It's always kind of a, well, I do this on the side. Am I hearing you correct when I say it sounds like you're making this like your whole ecosystem of, of audio? Is that correct? Absolutely, I am. Being not rejected. I mean, it's not like I was rejected for jobs, but just having no luck finding a job. I really made a decision. I'm done asking other people. I'm done asking them permission if I can work or not. That just doesn't make any sense to me, especially in today's day and age. The work I get, I feel like I create. So that's me looking for people or finding people that like need the skills that I have. And it's mainly for independent podcasters, but recently I've kind of broken into like bigger podcast production studios. And I think that's going to be a really big change for me, but I'm absolutely making this industry. I'm creating my own path in this industry and I'm focusing all of it on that. And the beauty of it is, is that, you know, music it's dear to my heart and it's and it's something that I still work in but to me I've I've always experienced this strange thing where the more simplified the audio gets and the more corporate it gets the more money one makes like the tasks become exponentially more simple it's like oh you want to clean this audio up and you want to pay me this amount of money that's crazy whereas 
you work with some bands, like the time and effort put into a mix or a recording is just like, at the end of the day, it boils down to this. I think one's hourly rate goes down dramatically when you're working with a band versus working in a more simplified thing like a podcast or any kind of corporate AV type situation. Has that been your experience? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I'm really bummed that I didn't get that studio experience. I mean, I did a little bit at schools, but I was never hired and worked in a recording studio where bands are coming in and doing that whole thing. I didn't have that experience because there's knowledge you're only going to get about audio working in a studio. Mm -hmm. There's those trade secrets that I love that I think could possibly help me doing what I do, but I'm kind of bummed that I didn't get that experience. But I'm also glad that I didn't take that studio path because I don't think personally... I would be happy doing it as a long-term career. Just like with the trumpet playing, even though I loved trumpet, I'm kind of glad I'm not a trumpet player because I see that lifestyle and that lifestyle doesn't necessarily excite me. I don't want to be indoors all day long from 12 midnight to 6 a.m. tracking a band or mixing a band. It'd be great if I could jump in every once in a while and do it, mm -hmm. but I don't want to make that a career. The jobs that I'm getting now, even though the pay isn't exactly where I want it to be, I really, really enjoy the gigs that I'm getting now. Like I have a lot of fun with them. And I found that I love doing location recordings. I love recording outside. So the fact that I'm getting to do that, it's, it's really awesome. Location recording as far as what? So I was super lucky last year in September that I got a text from a buddy saying, hey, there's a tape sync in San Diego on this day. Are you available? And I said, sure. They're like, great. I'm going to get you in contact with uh, the uh, producers. I get an email from two photo editors from the New York Times Magazine. And they're like, hey, we have sent a photographer, Brenda Ann Keneally, on the road for three and a half months taking photographs of families that are going through food insecurity for their first time during the pandemic and all that. So she started in New York and drove to San Diego and took photos of families that are standing in food lines that are going to food banks and stuff like that. And for the very last day, they wanted audio of that day. Now, they didn't know what they were going to do with it. They just knew that they wanted it. So Matt, I'm like, hell yes, I want to do that. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. It was a two and a half day gig. She shot a family all day in Santee, which is like basically the outskirts of San Diego. I mean, it's like the boonies if you live in San Diego. She, you know, took photos of this family all day. I had my mix pre. I had a, dude, listen to this. I had the Rode Wireless Go on her, so she at least had that lab. That's like the only equipment I really had access to, like given the time constraints that I had for the gig. In retrospect, it would have been great if I had better equipment, but I'm, dude, I'll tell you what, that, that Rode Wireless Go sounds pretty damn good. And then I had, a, I had a shotgun mic. I at least had audio on her all day long while she was speaking, and then I'm getting ambient sounds of the camera clicking 
of the flash going off, of the people that she's taking photographs of talking about why they're there, them being laid off a job and, you know, what that means for their family and all that. It was absolutely incredible. And then the next day, we went to her place in Bombay Beach. And Bombay Beach is on the Salton Sea. I don't know if you're familiar with the Salton Sea. Very. Yeah. So she lives in Bombay Beach. She owns a trailer there. And I spent that entire next day recording her talking about this trip that she took. So she pulls up her laptop and she goes through each city, each photo, and she's explaining, she's telling the story of every photo. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Just talking about the humanity of, of, of all of this. And I'm sure that, uh, God, uh, I don't know like if they paid any of these families. If my family was going through a food insecurity, I don't know how receptive I would be to people taking my picture and recording, but that's an interesting situation, just as a side note to, to all of this. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a really great experience. And she was talking about that briefly, about how they, how they did that. But, you know, dude, it's the New York Times Magazine. Like, they understand how to get the consent and how to build those relationships and the trust that, like, we're not going to leave you out to dry. And Brenda was great. And, you know, she, she said something to me that, for me personally, really, really made a lot of sense. And, you know, it was just nice to hear. When I was at her place, she said to me, the reason I got this job wasn't because I'm the best photographer. She's like, I can think of four or five photographers that can take better shots for this, for this gig, for this assignment. But the reason why they hired her is because she has the ability, the skills to do this trip. Dude, it's a three-month trip across country. She owns a van. She owns a trailer that she slept in, that she worked out of. She is very comfortable being in people's homes and not feeling like an outsider and all that. So it's like her skills as a photographer was almost secondary to her just being able to do the job. And, you know, for me and for what I've gone through, like I've picked up skills in reality TV that have absolutely helped me in the podcast industry. And I feel like I'm really equipped to do a lot of things. And I've heard that from the people that have hired me that, so like, I know that I, I'm equipped for this niche better than maybe just your average engineer. You could almost look at the podcast work that you do, and in this case with this photographer and this story for New York Times Magazine, it's almost like a an audio journalistic task. And right. the way I see it, it's like the not a necessarily twenty. I don't want to say it's a twenty first century thing, but it's just like it's a it's a new avenue for audio professionals to be considering. And I've brought it up in the past on my show that it's an often overlooked thing to consider podcasting, but it's definitely something that is can be very rewarding. And it can also create a nice living if you treat it as, as a real business and not just a side hustle. Right. I love working with independent podcasters the most. I could kind of do without like if I don't work for big media companies, I mean, obviously those big media companies are going to pay more, but I, I'm, I'm much more interested in kind of the everyday person or just the, you know, like a, a, someone that's really knowledgeable about something, but doesn't have a giant platform. I like working with those kinds of people, but in order to get these gigs that I really like, like this New York times thing, that's only going to be through a big media company. An independent podcaster is never going to pay me 
to do something like that. So I'm trying to find a balance of both. And recently, I've been getting more corporate gigs, which have been great because I'm also learning more skills too. Like I I just ended like a three-month contract with Lantigua Williams & Co. And they're a really big podcast production studio out of uh, DC. And again, I totally lucked into this, dude. I I applied (laughs) to a tape sync gig a year ago that I didn't get. But the studio owner, Jaleka, said, hey, someone else already responded, but I'm going to hang on to your info. Now, it was nice of her to say that, but whenever they say that, that means I'm never going to hear from them again. Well, a year later, I get an email from one of her producers saying, hey, Juleka said that you're possibly available to do two edits. They needed two hour-long conversations cut down to 25 minutes. Are you available? I said, yeah, sure. So the work was editorial work, which is something I hadn't done before. I mean, I've edited so many conversations that of course I can do it, but they were leaving it up to me what to cut out. And you know, the show that I was doing, it was not your everyday conversation. It was for a show called Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. And Phi Beta Kappa is like the oldest academic society in the US. Hmm. So these are scientists and, you know, scholars in whatever field, and they're having these big conversations. And, you know, they give me an hour interview and you got to cut it down to 25. Well, Doing that one gig led to three months of work because they just kept giving me work after they saw I could do it. So I, I finally got experience producing, which is great. And they hired me as a reporter on a full episode for one of their corporate clients that they have. And I've never done that. Like I, I don't have a journalism background, but I've I've been doing this long enough and I'm familiar with it. And I've worked with enough people that like I kind of understood what I needed to do. And that episode just came out on Monday a few days ago. And it's great because it's like now I have that feather in my cap. Yeah, it's it's a great position to be in because it puts you in a lot of different situations that allow you to interact with different types of media and stories and it's not just entertainment. I, I once again, let's, uh, bringing up the journalistic aspect of this, and I find that aspect very fascinating. You know, you get to do this, you get to employ your, your audio skills and your love of audio, but you're doing it in this entirely different ecosystem that it's a very attractive type aspect of audio, I, I think. Yeah. And because I have a background in audio and I, I understand basics, I can definitely get by, but now I'm having to learn more about that journalistic, about the producer-type roles, how they do things. And again, it did help me coming from reality TV and working with those producers and seeing how they do things and how they, I mean, dude, it's reality TV. So it's like they absolutely mold stories, let's say. (laughs) So, you know, it, 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 I did pick things up there that is translating or transferring to this, which has been helpful, but it's been great so far. And I really look forward to seeing where I ultimately end up. Because I feel like the jobs that I might want to get, I might end up producing, I think. Uh Because, I mean, the grind of mixing, I found that trying to just mix podcasts for a living, it's it's, like, good luck. Unless you have those really big clients, good luck. So I think I might be doing more producing and trying to get into that because there's more of those jobs and they pay better. What do you think is a key skill to help you excel from from this point forward? 
That is a great question. Holy cow. Well, I mean, the biggest thing for me right now is I'm really looking for books or videos or courses to understand storytelling. I know that sounds super cliche because it is, but podcasting is about storytelling, but it really is. And I mean, the better you can tell stories and the better understanding of stories that you have, that's what's really in demand. That's what I see is in demand. So when I did this reporting gig, they said, here, go interview this guy. All right. I don't really interview people. I don't like, how the hell do I do that? So after I did that initial interview, I tried to just get all of the basics of this guy's story, right? Like, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Cater it to, you know, like what I knew it was about. And then when I cut that up and I gave it to my producer, she immediately pointed out, well, what about this? Well, what about this? What about this? And it's like, oh man, I blew that. I absolutely blew that. Like they said something like, yeah, growing up without a father, he really didn't teach me things that I needed to know. And then I just kept going. Her obvious question was, what were those things? And it's like, oh, that's where having that background in journalism would have helped. But I'm learning that now. And I mean, for me, the the great thing about it was I learned that on the job. Having gone to two schools, it's great to learn it in the classroom, but there is nothing like learning it in the field. That's where you really learn things. So now that I'm getting that experience and now that I'm realizing that, it's really hammering that home. That's interesting. And I love that, that you're not only doing it in the field, but you're all you're having your moments of failure and retooling and course correction. And it's sinking in super deep, it sounds like. So let's talk about the business side of it briefly. Are you surviving? Right now I am. Right now I'm doing better than I've ever done. Having that I'm still at the point to where like when I get these big gigs, it really means something to me because A, I can put it on a resume, which these people really do look at. But I mean, you know, again, they just pay way better. And now I've, I've been doing this enough and I've had enough experience to where now I feel confident that if a big job does come across, I can absolutely apply for it. And when I do get it or if I do get it, I have no doubt that I'm going to jump in and do that job well. Because when I was only working with independents, I really didn't have anything to gauge it to because I hadn't been in that corporate environment. So I I didn't know what corporate clients would ask for. But now that I've done that for a little bit, it's like, oh, this is nothing. I should have been doing this a couple of years ago at least. (laughs) Yeah. So that, that contract with Lantigua Williams & Co. just ended. But I just got a job. I haven't signed the paperwork yet, so maybe I shouldn't jinx it. But I just got a job with Endeavor. And Endeavor's a really massive company. Like they bought the UFC a couple of years ago. They're a really big talent agency. Well, they have a Endeavor Audio. I got a job with them mixing one of their shows. And I'm very eager to start that because I think it's going to be a really good opportunity for me to hopefully turn that into more work with them because I think there's a real opportunity for that. So right now things are going well. Once again, you know, just kind of comparing working in music versus doing, doing what you're doing. You know, in music, a lot of people are, they're angling to get a Grammy. There's like a a recognition that they're looking for. And I'm certainly not going to say that that's a bad thing, but it, it sounds like to me, I'm getting a different sense from you about achievement in this area because 
you stay autonomous. You stay, you, you, you have your autonomy, you have your independence, but you get to participate in these cool things with some of these companies and do these contracts and you build up a resume and that leads to more and more, more work. And it's fun and it's enjoyable for you. It sounds like. Yeah, it is. When I first started off doing it, I didn't think that I was going to be doing this type of work. I really thought that I would contact some local business that wanted to improve their their marketing and start a podcast and get them more business. Like that's kind of what I was thinking. But things really changed for me once I started doing those tape syncs for these companies. And I was like, oh, wait, there's more that I could be doing. So now that I'm kind of on that route, yeah, like I'm focusing more on that and I'm finding that that's really where I think I'm best going to fit in. And then look, this whole industry is changing so much daily. Mm. The roles still aren't defined. I mean, like when someone says, hey, we're hiring a producer. I don't know if you've looked at like a like a job posting for a producer. Okay, whatever you think a producer is, it's going to include 10 other jobs that they're expected to do. Oh, yeah. Producers don't just deal with story. Producers are out there recording. They're out there editing. They're out there doing all these things. They might even be posting the podcast to the host. Yeah. So the roles aren't clearly defined. Now, there's a push to really try and define that. But because everything is so still in flux, I can kind of make things what I want to make them. And I know that the more experience I get, if a new podcast studio does open... I feel like I'm going to be pretty equipped to like maybe be like ahead of that at some point and like start that and, you know, do things the way that I think they should be done. So I know that that's a possibility. I'm not, I'm not actively seeking that, but again, I'm trying to get more feathers in my cap and get that experience because they really are looking for people to, to know all aspects of it. So it's really making things yourself and putting yourself where you think you're going to be best. This is a, an observation that I've had with regards to LinkedIn is that I get alerts about jobs, about certain gigs that, that are out there, and it'll say, hey, you are qualified based on the following things. And I'm like, huh, what is that? What are the qualifications? And I'll look and I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been involved in this for a long time. I know these things, these things, these things. And that's the beauty of what you're doing is, is the more experience you build and the more you document it on LinkedIn because of those job matching aspects of LinkedIn, you can kind of keep your finger on the pulse of some larger gigs out there because, you know, they're scraping the data from, from your resume that's out there. Whether people think that's creepy or not, it's really fascinating because, as you say, the more feathers in your cap you get, the more possibilities there are for new gigs, new and exciting gigs. Yeah. And, you know, I don't like that these jobs are requiring so many skills because it seems crazy to me. I'm a little bit more old school in my thinking that, like, it's hard enough to do one thing well, let alone five. My longtime producing partner, Courtney, she recently reached out to me and said, hey, can you teach me basics audio DAW? Because a lot of times for producer gigs, 
like I said before, they require you to do things like you got to be able to mix. And sometimes I still don't understand this, but they want you to master the podcast too. Like it's not clear what mastering a podcast is. And I was like, Courtney, like it's going to take forever. Like this isn't just, you know, (laughs) I can't sit you down in like a few sessions or in three months, you'll be able to mix an episode. Like that's not going to happen. And, you know, she was bummed about that. And, you know, I mean, like it sucks, but I guess it's good for people like me to where I can come in and if you are a producer or you are a journalist and you don't have that background, like if I work with you and if I'm paired with you, I'm going to make that easier on you and I'm going to do that job for you and help you out because she has to worry about the story and mixing the episode. That that just seems crazy to me. Yeah, I've seen some of these job postings and I've like rolled my eyes at the, it's like the producer will that, 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 you know, and you, you read down, you're Crazy. like, Are, that's insane. How much are you going to pay me to do all that? No, exactly. thanks. And that's the beauty of it is you can reject and not even apply and find better gigs. And in fact, it makes it easier because they're showing you their cards or saying, here's what we expect. Well, okay. Do you want me to fail? Right. Because what you're laying out here that's not a a recipe for success yeah for a producer and i mean sadly like that's that's really the norm man being in la i've been to a bunch of podcast meetups and i've met a lot of people and i met this one guy that works at the ringer i don't know if you're familiar with the ringer Uh, no i'm not bill simmons who's a big sports writer started the ringer and it was bought by spotify it was one of those big acquisitions like a couple years ago and i was talking to this kid pretty fresh out of college. He's in charge of doing like their MLB podcast, their football podcast, and like their hockey podcast. And he does everything himself. I mean, he finds the guests, he interviews the guests, he mixes the show. And I mean, they bang them out. I'm sitting there listening to this, like, how is that possible? How can these companies just build that kind of a model to where they get someone right out of college and it's like, you're doing everything. Like you are doing this show. Like the whole show, it's you. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard enough time just doing one show. Exactly. And, you know, it was like a breath of fresh air when I hired Anne-Marie to do editing of the interviews because it was like, oh, okay, I can relax from that aspect of it and concentrate on the other aspects. Doing three podcasts and doing everything, forget it. It's really nuts. But again, that's, that's where the whole, like the roles aren't defined yet. And I know there's a group of companies and podcast production companies that are getting together and they're trying to have some kind of standard to where a a mixing engineer does this, a supervising producer does this, and they're trying to start that. And um, it's going to be interesting to see if that, if that takes, and then, you know, like what that means. Because kind of another thing too with me, I don't necessarily like the idea of someone telling me what my role is. I'm sitting here complaining about all this and then I'm going to completely backtrack. I kind of also don't like someone telling me what my role is or what my rate should be. Mm -hmm. Like the rates for tape syncs are really low. Like they're really, really low. And most companies are going to give you or ask for the minimum. Bare minimum for a tape sync is going to be about $150 plus mileage. It may not be that bad if it's close to you because tape syncs are typically an hour, right? It's going to be an hour interview. But you have to factor in half hour to set up, half hour to tear down, and then commute. I live near LA. I work all over LA. Dude, if I'm in traffic, getting there is going to be brutal. Getting back is going to be brutal. So this one hour gig turns into a six hour gig. 
And then I'm making 150 for six hours, which is pretty lousy. But some companies do pay more. Somewhere like 250 is a decent rate for a tape sync. And I've, I have gotten more for other ones. But yeah, man, it's definitely a grind. And that's why I'm not exclusively just doing that. That's just a part of it. So when they do pop up and it's on a day where I'm not working, I have no problem doing that. Taking a drive into LA, doing a quick recording. Because two, now I'm hopefully building a relationship with whatever producer that is. And the next time they have one in LA that they need, they'll come to me. Wow. I knew that there was this aspect that you bring to the table that I wanted others to hear. And I'm really, uh, really happy we could talk about all this today. Do you maintain a website or presence that people can check you out? I don't have a website, but I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Plastic Audio. So if you just look up Plastic Audio, you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. And Clubhouse, don't forget Clubhouse. And Clubhouse, our favorite, our favorite new hangout. Wow, Michael, this has been great. I'm so happy that you came on. I will put links to your social media accounts in the show notes so people can follow you and uh, contact you if they have podcast needs that, that they can hire you for. You've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it. Matt, thank you so much, man. This was a, this was a huge thrill for me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, great talking to you. Talk to you later. Adios. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Michael Castaneda here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. It really helps out the show. But that's all for me today. Want to thank the crew? That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and you know the drill. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>